It is women who pack cards and throw off damaged paper. I have not obtained any reliable account of English female card makers, but there must be many. In an old Nuremberg rate book are the names of Elizabeth and Margaret Carton Maturin, reported in 1436 and 1438. Cards were invented in 1361. In about 70 years, therefore, the manufacture had passed into woman's hand. In my notes from the census, I find no mention of wood engravers, but, in 1839, Charlotte Nesbitt, Marion Williams, Mary Byfield, Mary and Elizabeth Clint held honorable positions among English wood engravers, while, at the close of the last century, Elizabeth Blackwell executed botanical plates and Angelica Kaufman engraved on steel, to the satisfaction of Sir Joshua Reynolds. In London, recently, one accomplished female engraver has turned her steel plates into a pleasant country house, which she means to furnish with the proceeds of her delicate painting on glass. A whole volume might be written concerning English female printers. Turning over some old books the other day in the antiquarian rooms at Worcester, I came upon Elizabeth Bathurst's Truth Vindicated, printed and sold by Mary Hind, at number 2 in George's Yard, Lombard Street. 1774. A little farther along, I found Sophia Hume's Letters to South Carolina, printed and sold by Luke Hind, at the Bible in George's Yard, Lombard Street, 1752. Good Quaker books, both of them, and the title pages told a pleasant story. Here, at the sign of the Bible, Luke Hind carried on his work in 1752. When he died, his widow kept the establishment open and taught her girls to stand at the forms, so, twenty-two years after, in 1774, the place goes on in her name. No change, only some dissenting wind has blown down the old Bible, and a gilded number two shines in its stead. It is the history of half the business women in England, and a very creditable history for Mary Hind. On those dishes of Liverpool were our pretty pictures in grey ink. Women took them wet from the copper plate, and, laying them along the biscuit, carried it to the furnace, there the paper burns away, while others paint and gild, or, with hideous clatter of bloodstones, polish off the finer ware. In the next street, hundreds of women make paper bags and pill boxes, without wasting a square inch of material. Not long ago, two young girls, whose father's clerkship was ill-paid, took to making artificial teeth and succeeded so well as to obtain constant orders and a competence. More cheering still, a young servant, with strong elbows, took to French polishing, and gave desk and work box and inlaid cabinet a gloss that no varnish of man could match. For two or three years she made contracts with upholsterers, and kept herself in profitable work, then Cupid pinched the strong elbows, and she slipped out of permanent reputation as a cabinetmaker's wife. In brushmaking, women sort the hair and set it in the holes. The delicate, comb-like arrangement of the badger's hair in the modern shaving brush can be made only by a woman's hand, and she who has skill to do it well may ask her own wages. Then there are glove cleaners, women who strain silk, in fluting, across the old-fashioned work bag, or the parlor organ front, women who shell peas and beans at so much a court, and who make the thousands of baskets for the fruiter's stall. 
Passing the white lead factory at meal times, you will see 50 women file away, whose duty it is to pile the lead for oxidation, and thousands, very different from these, sit making artificial flowers, many of them cheap enough, but others, from their exquisite grace and naturalness, bringing the artist's own price. I have purposely dwelt on all these avocations. As you have followed me, has it seemed to you that we wanted more avenues for manual labor? As many as you please. We are bound to inherit the whole earth. But it seems to me that what is most needed is, first, respect for woman as a laborer, and then respect for labor itself. When men respect women as human beings, consequently as laborers, they will pay them as good wages as men, and then uncommon skill or power to work will be set free from the old forcing pump and siphon, and we shall see what women can do. When men respect labor, respect it so far, that they hold a woman honored when she seeks it, then women of a higher rank will seek to invest their capital in mercantile experiments, will establish factories or workshops, will organize groups of struggling sisters, and the class that most needs to be helped, the idle rich, will find happiness and honor, will find help in offering opportunities to the lowest. What the lowest class of women need is active brains to plan and think for them. There are plenty of these active brains at the West End, tingling with neuralgia, hot with idleness, dizzy with waltzing. Offer a government testimonial to the first girl of rank who will carry her brains to a market, and you will see what a throng of aspirants we shall have, letting it be understood, mind you, that the public feeling sustains the government testimonial. Let us ask, then, a few questions about the state of female labor in the United States. Our census is by no means so complete as that of Great Britain, and our statements will, therefore, be less accurate. At the close of the Revolution, there were in New England, and perhaps farther south, many women conducting large business establishments and few females employed as clerks, partly because we were still English and had not lost English habits. Men went to the war or the general court, and their wives soon learned to carry on the business upon which not only the family bread, but the fate of the nation, depended, while our common schools had not yet begun to fit women for bookkeepers and clerks. The island of Nantucket was, at the close of the war, a good example of the whole country. Great destitution existed on the establishment of peace. The men began the whale fishery with redoubled energy, some fitted out and others manned the ships, while the women laid aside distaff and loom to attend to trade. A very interesting letter from Mrs. Eliza Barney to Mr. Higginson gives me many particulars. Fifty years ago, she says, all the dry goods and groceries were kept by women, who went to Boston semi-annually to renew their stock. The heroine of Miriam Coffin was one of the most influential of our commercial women. She not only traded in dry goods and provisions, but fitted vessels for the merchant service. Since that time, I can recall near 70 women who have successfully engaged in commerce, brought up and educated large families, and retired with a competence. It was the influence of capitalists from the continent that drove the Nantucket women out of the trade, and they only resumed it a few years since, when the California emigration made it necessary. Five dry goods and a few large groceries are now carried on by women, 
as also one druggist's shop. Mrs. Gaskell, in her Life of Charlotte Bronte, mentions a woman living as a druggist, I think, at Hayworth, and I have always been surprised that this business was not left to women. Our Nantucket druggist is doing well. In Pennsylvania, the Quaker view of the duties and rights of women contributed to throw many into trade at the same period. One lady in Philadelphia transferred a large wholesale business to two nephews and died wealthy. I saw a letter the other day, which gave an interesting account of two girls who got permission there to sell a little stock in their father's shop. One began with 62 cents, which she invested in a dozen tapes. The other had three dollars. In a few years, they bought their father out. The little tape seller married and carried her husband eight thousand dollars, while the single sister kept on till she accumulated twenty thousand dollars and took a poor boy into partnership. I have spoken of English female printers. The first paper ever issued in Rhode Island was printed by a brother of Dr. Franklin, at Newport. He died early and his widow continued the work. She was aided by her two daughters, swift and correct compositors. She was made printer to the colony and, in 1745, printed an edition of the laws in 346 folio pages. That she found time to do something else, you may judge from this advertisement. The printer here of Prince Linens, Calicoes, Silk, etc., in figures, in lively and durable colors, without the offensive smell which commonly attends linen printed here. Margaret Draper printed the Boston Newsletter, and was so good a Tory that the English government pensioned her when the war drove her away. Clementina Bird edited and printed the Virginia Gazette, and Thomas Jefferson wrote for her paper. Penelope Russell also printed the Censor in Boston in 1771. When we record these things and think how women are pressing into printing offices in our time, it is pleasant to find a generous action to sustain them. At a recent printer's convention held in Springfield, Illinois, the following resolution was adopted. Whereas, the employment of females in printing offices as compositors has, wherever adopted, been found a decided benefit as regards moral influence and steady work, and also as offering better wages to a deserving class, therefore, be it. Resolved, that this association recommends to its members the employment of females whenever practicable. Mrs. Barney tells us that failures were very uncommon in Nantucket, while women managed the business, and some of the largest and safest fortunes in Boston were founded by women, one of whom, I remember, rode in her own chariot, and kept $50,000 in gold in the chimney corner, lest the banks should not be as cautious in their dealings as herself. While writing these pages, I have visited such a woman, still living in Prince Street, at the age of 95. Her name is Hillman. She lived for 64 years in the same house, and made her property by a large grocery business and speculations on a strip of real estate. Her father, Mr. William Hago, was a nautical instrument maker, and she has a very remarkable head, and as conservative a horror of modern changes steam bakeries, for instance as any of you could wish. Some of you will remember the two sisters Johnson, who for more than half a century, 
kept a crockery shop on Hanover Street, and separated about two years ago, one sister to retire on her earnings, the other to rest in a quiet grave, at the age of fourscore. The spirit of modern improvement has since seized hold of the old shop. It was one of the most distinguished of our female merchants Martha Buckminster Curtis who planted, in Framingham, the first potatoes ever set in New England, and you will start to hear that our dear and honored friend and bent entered on her business career so long ago as 1784, at the age of 16. She first entered a crockery ware and dry goods firm, but, at the age of 21, established herself in Washington, north of Summer Street, where we remember her. She soon became the center of a happy home, where sisters, cousins, nieces, and young friends received her affectionate care. The intimacy which linked her name to that of Mary were as fresh in all our minds. What admirable health she contrived to keep we may judge from the fact that she dined at one brother's table on Thanksgiving Day for over fifty years. She was the valued friend of Channing and Gannett, and her character magnified her office, ennobled her condition, gave dignity to labor, and won the love and respect of all the worthy. Less than two years ago, at the age of ninety, she left us, but I wish to mention both her and Miss Kinsley in this connection, because they were the first women in our society to confer a merchantable value upon taste.